Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Today, we'll talk with West Virginia native Anna Sale. She has a new book out that gets into relationships and death. What are the kinds of last conversations you want to have with someone who is ill? If you are ill, what are the last conversations you want to have with the people you love? And not try to act like it's not happening. Sale writes frankly about topics that can make us uncomfortable, as she told my co-host Caitlin Tan. Kind of a subject change. Let's move to the next section, uh, sex. So you... <laughs> I, I love that transition. It's always pretty odd. I know. I didn't really know how to do that, but... Um, I think we're talking about hard things. (laughs) And gun violence is on the rise in many cities across the country, including some in Appalachia. In Charleston, one 14-year-old says the threat of violence makes her feel like she doesn't get to have a normal childhood. I'm not allowed to play outside with my siblings. Like even during the day? No, because it doesn't matter what time of day it is, gun violence can still happen in broad daylight. And we'll go on a nature hike with biologists who are restoring wetlands for frogs and salamanders. This may look messy right now, but this is going to be heaven for some of these little creatures that we're targeting. Oh, look, it's a little red-spotted newt. (laughs) How cool are they? Look at them go. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. You might know this voice. Of course, talking about hard things that you don't have much practice talking about out loud can be unsettling and uncomfortable. Years ago, Anna Sale was a reporter here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Now she's host of the popular podcast Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC in New York City. It's a podcast that talks about, as she says, the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. We invited Sale onto Inside Appalachia to talk about her new book, Let's Talk About Hard Things. But first, a heads up. We'll be talking about some hard things ourselves later in the show. We'll hear two difficult conversations, one with the person locked in prison and another with teenagers who lost their friend to gun violence. So if you're sensitive to those topics, or if you care for other listeners who might be, like young children, you may want to turn the volume down, or at least keep a sharp ear out. Anna Sale's new book, Let's Talk About Hard Things, weaves together her own personal experiences and stories from people she's interviewed. It covers five topics. Death, sex, money, family, and identity. My co-host Caitlin Tan recently spoke with her. Sale started off with some advice for talking with someone who is grieving. So saying something like, it's okay, you're not okay. You're not supposed to be okay. Death is one of the the hardest thing. You know, there's no undoing, no working your way around it. It's a fact. It's a hard thing. And, and that's what sort of every conversation I had with people about death for this chapter sort of circled around, which was, what can the conversation be about death or grieving or loss if you don't try to fix that ultimate hard part about death, which is that it's unfixable. If you instead can witness what that means, which means, you know, how sad it is, how much you want to express care for someone who is leaving you, you know, what are the kinds of last conversations you want to have with someone who is ill? If you are ill, what are the last conversations you want to have with the people you love and not try to act like it's not happening? Yeah, which... 
is so hard to do, but I think really important. Um, so let's, uh, kind of a subject change. Let's move to the next section, uh, sex. So you, <laughs> I, I love that transition. It's always pretty odd. I know. I didn't really know how to do that, but, um, I think if we're talking about hard things, <laughs> yeah. um, it's sex is another yeah. one. Mm -hmm. So you start the chapter off, you're in the doctor's office, um, you're getting your birth control removed so that you and your husband can begin trying to have a second child. And you talk about how it's kind of awkward, like between you and your doctor and um, you go home and talk to your husband, but it ends up opening this whole new realm of your guys's intimate love life and relationship. Um, can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, I, I love that story. I had a baby, then I got long acting birth control. We were deciding we wanted to to think about having a second kid. And so I went to the doctor to get my long acting birth control removed. And I made a kind of joke like you do, like, oh, you know, it's not like we've needed it that much, yeah. you know, just making a joke about what it's like to have a, a you know, a little kid, like your, your romantic and intimate life changes um, when you have a little kid. And my doctor, who I should say it was a man, because it just, just so you can understand the full cringe of this, <laughs> <laughs> he said, he said, Oh, well, let's talk about that. What's it been like? Oh, and I was like, Ugh. yeah. Um, and he also indicated that he knew what I did for a living and knew I talked about hard things on a podcast. So I was like, okay, Anna, like, don't shrink from this conversation. <laughs> like, sit with it, do this. And it, it was so lovely because he just talked about how normal it was with people who were postpartum and then they were thinking about a second kid and there've been all of these big changes to how your family is working. And, and yes, it changes your intimate life with your partner. He's like, maybe you could talk about that with your partner because there can be a lot of pressure if you're moving from rare intimacy to wanting to get pregnant intimacy. Like that can, that can create a lot of pressure. And so I went home and I said, I have an assignment from my doctor. We have to talk about this. It was just really nice. It, it allowed us to sort of like name the elephant in the room, which was like, we are in a new phase in our romantic relationship together. Also, that is fine. That is normal. That happens. And it allowed us to just sort of like figure out and say like how it was going for us and how we wanted to think about trying to get pregnant for the second time. And it just opened up this sort of like, conversation to just make it out loud instead of just unspoken like oh let's pretend it's been like it it's always been and then we're just gonna hopefully get pregnant you know so you also write about knowing when to call it quits though also and how to have that conversation and I believe you kind of started that little part of the section saying what I want has changed and so in this you talk a little bit about your divorce from your first husband but you also mention Jane Fonda's divorce from Ted Turner. And you actually quote her, something that she said to you in an interview for your podcast. Can you read that? I just found it really profound. I knew that if I stayed with him, I could never be a fully realized person. And I had to make a decision. And it was really scary. I felt like Virginia Woolf, only I had two angels in the house, one on one shoulder saying, oh, come on, Fonda, lighten up. The guy's got two million acres of the most gorgeous land in the world, and he's funny, and he keeps you laughing. And on the other shoulder, there was an angel with a very soft whisper saying, Jane, you can stay with him and die married. 
but you'll die not being whole. And so I opted for the whisper. I mean, that's incredible. And like, sometimes the harder choice. Oh, yeah. It's like walking out into outer space. Yeah. <laughs> Letting go of gravity, the gravity of what you know. Right. So in the section about money, you write, in fact, you quote someone saying it's both emotional and concrete. I think we all could agree with that. And how it kind of played a big role in the breaking up of your first marriage. You said you ultimately realized you guys wanted to make different choices with money and with your lives. Let's talk about that. That idea that money is both a symbol and a tool, I think is really critical to hold in your head that these two things are operating simultaneously. Because I've struggled with that. Like, on the one hand, it's like, it's just money. It's just like numbers in a bank account. And I think that when you when you only think about money and planning money and, and talking about money in a relationship around these like very like tactical conversations, there's so much that you miss. And that was certainly the case in my first marriage. Like I, I grapple in the book with this question of like, is that why we got divorced? Was it about money? That seems so embarrassing and basic. And like, how could we not just figure that out? But I think, you know, the reason we we split up is because we had really different visions for how we wanted our lives to look. And that became a real breaking point for us. And, you know, the other thing that I ex- wanted to explore in the chapter is like, we also bring really different like cultural ideas about money and security and interdependence or not from the kind of families we grow up in and the cultures that we grow up in. And so what is money for? Is money for building that stability or is it the sense of like, you help your family? That's what you do. That's the primary reason we have money. So that's another way to talk about money. Okay. So the next section, family. Difficult. We don't always choose our family. And uh, you talk about how, I mean, the general word of boundaries and Having boundaries is hard with family. A lot of times we want to avoid conflict and keep the peace. But your conversation starter under family, one of them is, I'm drawing a line. The big idea in that chapter is the thing that makes conversations within families hard, particularly when you're an adult in a family and you know having conversations with your adult siblings or your adult parents. What's hard about those is there's two things happening <laughs> at once. In a family, you both have this common origin. You have this sense of like coming from the same place. So having kind of the assumption that you'll be able to understand each other and that you know each other, you can anticipate how each other is going to be. And then the other thing that happens when you live in a family is you separate and you grow up and you pull apart from that feeling of closeness. You know, that is what happens when you go from being a baby to a teenager to an adult you have more separation. And I think a lot of the hardness of family is like, you know, feeling like I don't feel that closeness and ease that I once had, or I'm supposed to feel this closeness and I don't, I don't feel this way. So figuring out when to say like, I have to declare something, even though I know it's going to sort of disrupt this story we have inside our family about who we are and how we work. Like that's what that story I'm drawing a line is about. 
I want to get to identity and, and something that I think a lot of West Virginians are going to identify with. You grew up in West Virginia, and there's a lot of pride and identity that, that came along with that for you. But you also felt this overwhelming guilt when you moved away. And you even mentioned how someone yelled quitter at you when the word had gotten around town that you were leaving. I mean, it was with a smile, but it, you know. Right, with a smile, but it still hurts. Because it's kind of your worst fear. How has this shaped you? And how has the identity of being West Virginian shaped you? Yeah, I feel such a connection to my identity as a West Virginian. And uh, but that's been sort of complicated because I haven't lived there in uh, now it's been 13 years since I last lived in West Virginia. And my family doesn't live there anymore. It's a strange thing to feel of a place and for a place to be your home and to, you know, when I go visit, I have to like think like, do I have to stay in a hotel? <laughs> that's, that's weird. Um, uh, and, and I think, you know, my experience of being from West Virginia is I feel so grateful to have grown up in a place and to come from a place where there is a sense, and I think it's because there's a sort of like us against them sense that comes from sort of having this protectiveness and defensiveness about how places outside West Virginia view West Virginians. It makes you really have this sense of like collective identity and being a part of something that is special. And I didn't know until I left for college that that's not how everyone feels when they're at home. You know, there are lots of places where, you know, there's communities and people drive to the store and then they go back to their housing development and they're in a sort of like anonymous suburb and they, you know, but they don't feel a connection to the place. But then that for me has raised a whole set of questions as a young person, which was like, oh my gosh, like I, I can make a choice to really contribute to this place. And I want to contribute to this place. Like I can see what I do here and how it matters. And for me, that's that, you know, at a certain point started to rub up against that question of like, but what else is there? And I feel bad about wondering that because then I'm going to be just one of those other people who left West Virginia. And, you know, we all know how we feel about them. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> so, so yeah, but I think, um, you know, what I have carried with me about from being from West Virginia is like, I have that sense of what it is to like read a news story and feel yourself being talked about and at, but not with. Mm -hmm. I think that is something I felt a lot as a, as a West Virginian. And I think it's really shaped the kind of work that I do and the journalism that I do. Like, I really want to be curious and open and try not to bring all of these sort of like flat assumptions and stereotypes and prescribed scripts about what I think is going on in someone's life or what it's like where they live because of some fact about uh, what I know about their identity. But I also wanted to make the point, I'm somebody who's who's a white woman who works in media, who my accent has faded. Like I have really been able to shape shift. So there are some places where I am absolutely not viewed as a West Virginian and I can choose when to reveal that, you know, to like prove my, my bona fides, or I can sort of fit in. And I think something important about identity and talking about identity is like, that is not the experience of someone who 
you know, one fact of their identity, it becomes the way they are identified when they move into spaces where they're unfamiliar. So I think it's important when you're thinking about identity conversations, like there's some of us who who do need to be listening more than talking. Yeah, I think we all can be listening a little more right now. So the conclusion to your book is really beautiful. And um, it takes us really full circle. And I, I don't want to give away too much, but it does kind of have this idea of that sometimes you have to accept the conversation is done. That maybe there isn't anything more to say. On that note, is there any parting words of advice? Yeah, I mean, I wanted to end the book on this idea of like, you know, it's called Let's Talk About Hard Things, but my message is not let's talk about hard things ad nauseum and keep picking at scabs um, and thinking <laughs> you're going to kind of come to a different result. Like there, there is something really important about recognizing when a conversation is hard because it's revealing something hard to you. Maybe that's, this is a disagreement that I'm not going to be able to agree with this person. Or maybe it's like, oh, this person in my life is never going to be able to accept this part of me. And I have to figure out what to do with that information. And for me, it was, you know, oh, it's not that I'm not working hard enough and talking about hard things. When my first marriage was ending, it was that the conversations were hard because we were admitting hard things to each other, that we wanted different things. That's also can be an outcome of a really successful conversation about hard things. I mean, generally, I think when you are talking about hard things and you come away from the conversation feeling a little unresolved and maybe have a little bit of like, I don't know, is this, I don't feel like we have closure. That's a sign of a productive conversation. <laughs> it generated something new. It generated a feeling that you have to sit with and turn over and not just like tie up in a bow. And that's what these kinds of hard conversations, um, all of these hard things lead us to is like, oh, this is a part of life that I'm just going to have to move through. But the comforting part of the book, I feel like, is I really do believe like when you lean into those conversations with the people in your life about the stuff that is unresolved or hard or confusing or messy or doesn't look cool on Instagram, when you share that with people in your life, it fortifies your relationship, makes you feel less alone, which does make you more resilient for getting through the hard stuff. That was author and reporter Anna Sale speaking with Inside Appalachia co-host Caitlin Tan. They were discussing Sale's new book, Let's Talk About Hard Things, which is out now. Coming up, we'll hear a firsthand account of what it's like inside a prison during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's less like wondering if I'll get sick, trying to stay safe, and more like wondering when I'm going to get sick and if I'll even recover safely. And we'll hear from teenagers on Charleston's west side. Their friend was gunned down in a drive-by shooting. So how are they coping? That's coming up next. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back.
Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. In 2020, non-suicide gun deaths went up by 26% across the U.S. So far, this year's numbers haven't been much better. Amid this surge in gun violence, reporter Kyle Vass looks at how one shooting has affected young people in Charleston, West Virginia. Thirty teenagers and a handful of adults have gathered at the corner of Greenwood and Central Avenue in Charleston, West Virginia. One teenager, Jay, sees my microphone and strikes up a conversation about recording gear. Jay is a student at Capitol High School. He likes to ride dirt bikes, shoot BB guns, and make music under the name Mob Jay. Slide, ooh, she like to get in the groove, ooh. Hop on the beat and I cruise, throw the whip all up in the boom. Boom, it go, ooh, run up for me, it's your doom. But today, Jay and his friends aren't riding dirt bikes. They're here for a candlelight vigil to remember their classmate and friend, K.J. Taylor, who was killed in a drive-by shooting two days before. David, another friend of K.J.'s, says he's still in shock. Yeah, this was about, only about two days ago. It really doesn't seem real because it's not right. David says the impact K.J. had on his life Uh, is helping him carry on. Let him live through me. He wouldn't want nobody to be down. He wasn't a down type of guy. He was always happy, joking around. He upped the mood, so try not to stay down as much. Yeah. Hundreds of people, mostly older teenagers, show up to the eerily familiar site of a roadside vigil set up to honor a victim of gun violence. A young man named Ikaya stands in front of the candlelight display and begins to sob. His friend, Keandra, puts her arms around him. Keandra says she's thinking about KJ's optimism and what he would do to help people right now. It's the point of keeping other people strong right now because I already know how other people feel about KJ. I know how I feel about KJ because that's my little cousin, that's my baby cousin, that's my dad, the mom. But I just got to keep people's heads up. A couple of hours into the vigil, news breaks of another young person shot and killed in Charleston. Chastanay Joseph, 22 years old. Martise Washington, a community organizer who helped arrange the vigil, holds back tears having just heard the news. It hurts. Somebody else is going to not have a kid to go home to or to come home. When is this shit going to stop? At some point, man, we all got to do better. Each person, like I keep saying, our community, we are failing each other. We're failing each other. Washington says KJ's death feels different because he was a young man who tried to stay away from anything that would result in violence, and yet he couldn't avoid being killed by it. As we're talking, a teenager tells me he just saw on social media that someone was talking about shooting up the vigil. The mood of the crowd changes from somber mourning to agony and fear. A fear punctuated by the fact that the person who shot KJ hasn't been arrested. 14-year-old Alexandria says the potential for gun violence to occur at any moment has robbed her of a normal childhood. And imagine you're throwing the football and then blam, you're shot. We don't want that to happen. We need to keep these people who are shooting out of our neighborhoods so we can actually live. 
Like, I'm not allowed to play outside with my siblings. Like, even during the day? Or? No, because it doesn't matter what time of day it is, gun violence can still happen in broad daylight. Alexandria says she's not sure what she wants to do when she grows up, but she's sure she won't be staying here to do it. She says she loves West Virginia, but is terrified by how commonplace this tragic loss of life has become in her community. You don't feel sad, you don't feel anything really, because things like this continuously happen over and over and over and over. It's crazy, to be honest. As the sun sets and fear of another shooting escalates, the crowd starts to disperse. Some people, including myself, break out into a light jog to get away from the corner. Jogging alongside me is Ikaya, the teenager I saw earlier. Could you tell me why people are leaving now? There was a shooting somewhere else and they threatened to shoot. Where we at, just had to leave, you know. Yeah. Can't have fun nowhere. Because people don't have any kind of respect. I don't know when they're going to stop. Innocent boy just passed away. Like. Ikaya says despite the fact that he's running away from the threat of violence at this moment, he doesn't share the view that a lot of young people express tonight. He doesn't want to run away from Charleston. I love Charleston, but I'm going to say this. I don't feel safe by myself. I don't feel safe. But I do love Charleston. Over the next week, KJ's passing would prompt an outpouring of support. The city of Charleston held a public funeral for KJ in its 13,000-seat Civic Center arena and organized a memorial event at Laidley Field where KJ played football. After the services, a block party was held at the 2nd Avenue Community Center to celebrate KJ's life. I caught up with Ikaya on the basketball court where he was playing with some friends and reminiscing about KJ. He loves 2nd Avenue. I'm, I'm glad we all can be on 2nd and, and feel safe. I don't feel like nothing's going to happen. Nothing like last time. But while the center is one place they can come to feel safe, they need more places to go on Charleston's west side. We don't have nowhere else to go but 2nd Avenue. Yeah, it's not Walk around the west side. It's just, it's just really nothing else to do. So yeah, I think if they put more stuff in the, in the community, I think it would, it would definitely be better. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Kyle Bass. Since Kyle originally reported that story, Charleston police have named a suspect in the April 7th murder of Capitol High School senior K.J. Taylor. At the time when this show was recorded, that person had not yet been arrested. The pandemic has made it harder to communicate for everyone, whether you're talking through a mask or trying to figure out Zoom. People in prison are even more restricted. Madison Buchanan, a college student at Moorhead State University, spoke with someone in a Virginia prison and brings us this documentary. Hello, this is a prepaid debit call from an inmate at the Virginia Department of Corrections, Greensville Correctional and Work Center. To accept this call, press zero. To refuse this call, hang up or press. This call is from a collection facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Hello? Hello? Madison? Yes, this is Madison. Hi. Hi, this is Jacob. I want to thank you so much for helping me out with this and um, talking to me. It really means a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Um, I mean, I'm all about, you know... New friends, new advocates, activists, anything positive. So first, can you tell me a little bit about your situation, where you are, and what it's like in there? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. This is um, Jacob Schaus, 1101441. I'm at Greensville Correctional Center. I'm in a actual licensed mental health unit. And um, we're in Jarrett, Virginia. And there's the most cases of COVID-19 are recorded here at Greensville and at Dillon Correctional Center and Haynesville Correctional Center. The Virginia Department of Corrections reports nearly 3,000 inmates and staff were tested last week at the prison. 192 inmates and 52 staff members had positive results. Prior to testing, only two inmates had symptoms. Yeah, I actually wrote a, a piece about 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 it, but they didn't. Uh, I sent it to a bunch of people out there, but they wouldn't let it go out. So they're censoring all of your emails? Yes, yes. You may read it saying? Yes, please, absolutely. It's entitled, Mentally Ill Amid a Pandemic of Incarceration, Infection, and Helplessness. This is due to the pandemic subjugation and overall dehumanization of prisoners while society turns a blind eye. Living amid this COVID-19 pandemic inside the walls, the prison walls, razor wire plantations, reestablishes helplessness in an exacerbated form where one's life takes an obvious backseat to prison bureaucracy, modern-day slavery, misleading the general public into a false sense of security that their incarcerated loved ones are safe and their well-being the overarching priority. It's less like wondering if I'll get sick, trying to stay safe, and more like wondering when I'm going to get sick and if I'll even recover safely. Certainly, many administrative memorandums have been circulated implementing new daily operational changes under the guise of safety protocols and protective practices. However, I have yet to have access to sanitation chemicals four times a day to sanitize myself, nor allowed to have my ill-fitting sneeze guard washed regularly or exchanged with a new one or any type of appropriate mask, much less PPE. I am constantly subjected to exposure by cross-contamination as prison workers as well as staff are allowed to roam freely throughout all separate housing units from their own where there were positive cases of COVID-19 into other places that there's been no reported cases. You have one minute remaining. They've been allowed in and out of our cells at times despite some of us in a licensed mental health unit having a single cell. And we are on an egregious lockdown schedule, especially for us prisoners in a licensed mental health unit where extreme isolation exacerbates underlying illnesses. There exist special requirements and guidelines for licensed facilities set forth by state and federal mental health authorities that are not being adhered to, primarily due to us prisoners being voiceless and utterly helpless under a repressed thumb. To this day, this was written on June 1st and sent out on June 1st, and it's never gotten to anyone. So they just censored it and blocked it. Never told me that they did. Did you get that? Hello? Thank you for using GTL. That's a documentary by college student Madison Buchanan called A Prepaid Call for Help, Prisons in a Pandemic. Buchanan made the documentary through Apple Shop's Appalachian Media Institute. I spoke with her to learn more about why and how she made it. So when I first did AMR, one of Apple Shop's programs, um, I did a piece over how prisons fail addicts and um, like how it fails to have, treat addiction and things like that. So I guess I'm sort of a long time running with the prison uh, activism. But when COVID came along, 
And I was trying to think, what is something that people aren't thinking of that much or um, that COVID is affecting? And I was like, well, prisons, obviously. I hate to be the one to do this every time, but I guess I, ha- I guess someone has to do it. <laughs> so um, I knew that that would be a good one to do because actually when COVID started, I had some family members that were in jail and I had talked to them and it was like a horror scene um at this point they weren't in there anymore so whenever I um, went to interview I messaged some people that I knew and I was like I'm doing this piece about how COVID has affected inmates and incarcerated people and um even the workers too and um if you guys know anybody who needs a story who wants to tell their story I need interviews you know I want to talk to people and someone I know got back with me and was like, I have these people, you have to talk to them. And they've been trying to get their story out forever. So I did. I talked to this guy, um, Jacob, and um, he told me all that was going on um, and where he was. And it was, like, so surreal to hear. And um, after I interviewed him, it was so clear that this just needed to be told, that this was not getting enough attention. Well, here we are eight months later, and the pandemic is still raging, although there's some signs of hope, maybe. You know, t- what's changed since then? What's um, How's your life changed? And how, yeah, if you want to give us an update on Jacob, that'd be great, too. So for me, it's sort of settled down, I guess, a little bit. Not really. Um, everything is still happening, but I guess I've kind of got accustomed to it now. Uh, since then, I've had to move houses to a different apartment. Um, school has been pretty difficult during this time, trying to keep up with things and not lose my scholarships and things like that. But it's pretty difficult because half is online, half is in person. It's hard to keep up with that stuff. And also, it's hard to just stay motivated when all this is happening. With Jacob, he actually transferred to a different place um, since then. And this place is also pretty bad. Um, He's talked to me about it, and they've like, won't let him make phone calls and stuff. It's pretty sad, but he still talks to me over email and stuff, so he's making it, and I guess we're all making it probably harder for him. (laughs) I think it's just important to, when things are so bad, like, sort of take a step back and look look at it from someone else's point of view, I guess, and that's what I try to do with my pieces, so... Madison Buchanan's documentary is part of a larger series, A Mask on the Mountains, Dimensions of COVID in Appalachia. We'll link it on our website, wvpublic.org. And now, some good news from the forests of Appalachia. Frogs and salamanders will get a new place to breathe thanks to a restoration project in the Laurel Highlands of western Pennsylvania. The Allegheny Front's Kara Holsapel recently visited to learn more. Driving up a gravel road towards the site, you see the old outbuildings of the former Ohio Pile Therapeutic Wilderness Camp, a residential program for kids that provided mental and behavioral treatment till 2008. The camp also left a giant cement swimming pool that needed to be removed. It was an engineering feat. I was a bit of a marvel. That's Joanne Albert of the Pennsylvania Natural Heritage Program at the Western Pennsylvania Conservancy. 
The site, about a half an acre, is between a spring and a small stream. And there was piping from both sources of water into this pond that was very deep cement with rebar, a big dam at the end, and um, up to nine feet deep at the far end. She says it was a liability. So last summer, the park, the conservancy, and partners broke up the cement with heavy machinery and set about restoring this area to a more natural state. We created a little series of vernal ponds and this wet meadow, which looks sort of lumpy right now, but it'll settle out into a like sort of a natural, hummocky, wet meadow. It still looks a little like a construction site because the button bush and other native species planted here last year haven't sprouted up yet. But it's the little puddles between the mounds of dirt that are the main attraction. A vernal pool is sort of an ephemeral wetland, so it's designed to dry out annually or at least every few years. The reason we want that to happen is to keep fish from living there because the animals that use it have a better breeding success when they don't have a predator in the pond with them. The animals they're hoping to attract are amphibians that have to travel from the surrounding woodland, where they live most of their lives, to the vernal pools to mate and lay their eggs. The eggs hatch, the larvae develop, and then they leave the pool and head into the forest before the pools dry out. In this particular area, those animals were using degraded habitat like road ruts, little puddles that might not remain wet long enough to support the life cycle. So there definitely was a lack of habitat here for them. Oh, look, it's a little red spotted newt. <laughs> How cool were they? Look at them go. These are the ones that live in the more permanent ponds as well as vernal pools. Um, these guys were here in the big cement pond, but they're still taking advantage of this more natural habitat. And I like to think they might be happier here. So, <laughs> but look how cute he is. Little yellow belly. Ryan Miller, a zoologist with the Pennsylvania Natural Heritage Program, is also here to show me some of the other species they're checking on today. The sides are mostly solid and compacted. He leads me along the edge of the meadow and around a deep spring-fed pool. Water bubbles out of the hillside and makes a slow serpentine to the bottom where the concrete of the old swimming pool has been buried. Let's head down here, watch your step. In between is the marshy meadow. So what we have here, if you look real close, you have what were two egg masses of wood frogs that were left here probably about a week ago, maybe less. And now the tadpoles are hatching out of the eggs. Hundreds of them. They're dark brown and just a couple of centimeters long, swimming around the edges of these gelatinous round masses. They're really, really kind of alien looking. That's a spring peeper frog. He's, they're only about the size maybe of a quarter or a little bit larger than a quarter. They're very, very small. They're very hard to find too. They're brown with a little darker brown X on their back is a way to identify them. Jefferson salamanders, spotted salamanders, and green frogs are other species they expect to use this habitat. Vernal pools face threats like tree succession, where the surrounding woods encroach on the wetland, and human development. Warming temperatures from climate change could also impact these habitats. The period when the pools stay wet could potentially become shorter. Might not stay wet enough, long enough, for those eggs and larvae to develop into adults and we could see a shorter breeding window. Joanne Albert says the wetland restoration is special because often when people change the landscape with infrastructure like swimming pools and dams, it's changed forever, not so here. This may look messy right now, but this is gonna be heaven for some of these little creatures that we're targeting. 
where the toads trilling in the meadow, it already is. For the Allegheny Front, I'm Kara Holsoppel. Mother's Day just passed, and in its honor, we'll take the final few minutes of our show today for the story of the West Virginian who created the holiday. Mountain State native Anna Jarvis started Mother's Day in 1908 at a church in downtown Grafton, but she didn't love what she saw it turn into, a commercialized greeting card holiday. This backstory is chronicled in the book, Memorializing Motherhood, Anna Jarvis and the Struggle for Control of Mother's Day, by Catherine Antolini. West Virginia Public Broadcasting's Duncan Slade spoke with Antolini about Jarvis's story and how the death of Jarvis's own mother inspired her to create the holiday. What impact does her death have on Anna Jarvis? And how does she, how does it come from, you know, the death of just your mother to this holiday? Like, how does that, how does that happen? When going through her writing and what she would claim is that it all begins in the 1870s. Anna is 12 years old. They're in church at the um, Andrew Methodist Episcopal Church in Grafton. And her mother, uh, Mrs. Jarvis, is a Sunday school teacher. And so she was listening to her mother give a Sunday school lesson on um, mothers of the Bible. You know, it was her mother's favorite Sunday school lesson. So at the end of that Sunday school lesson, um, her mother gives this prayer that she hopes and prays that sometimes somebody will create a Memorial Mother's Day to honor to honor women. So Anna swears she remembers that. What is the the first Mother's Day, and how does it kind of you know progress? Mrs. Jarvis dies in nineteen oh five. So nineteen oh six to nineteen oh seven, all that Anna organizes are small little memorials at, in Grafton at the what is now the International Mother's Day Shrine. And then she decides she wants not just little memorial services to her mother. She wants her this Mother's Day. So she starts this huge letter writing campaign in 1907. And she's writing to anybody she thinks that can help her. She's writing to politicians. She's writing to merchants. She's writing to church organizations. And she lucks out because she finds a supporter in John Wanamaker in Philadelphia, the huge merchant. So on May. 10th, 1908, is the first official Mother's Day. So the first ceremony is held in Grafton. So that's why West Virginia, we claim to be, this is, yeah, we're the mother of, the mother state of Mother's Day because we hosted in Grafton in the morning, the very first Mother's Day service. So by 1909, it's spreading to other states. By 1912, Mother's Day is being celebrated in every state in some capacity. So by the time we get to 1914 and Rudra Wilson makes it a national holiday, it's it's already being celebrated by every state. I was thinking about like nowadays, Mother's Day is this this big thing where there's there's candy, there's you go out to brunch afterwards, there's flowers involved, there's all this other stuff. When does that commercialization kind of start? And then how does she deal with that? All right. So by 1912, she's she's already mad at the floor industry. So it starts pretty quickly because once the holiday starts to spread, right, by 1912, it's being recognized um, throughout the United States. Of course, the floor industry is going to jump on that. And so by then she's mad. She's mad because they're actually kind of claiming that it was their day. The floor industry would have advertisements saying this is our day. 
she's she's mad at them by 1912. By 1922, she's boycotting, leading boycotts for the floor industry. 1923, there was a confectioner's convention in Philadelphia, candy makers, and she crashes that convention to yell at them. Um, there's another, she, in um, 1925, she's arrested for disorderly conduct for crashing another convention of charities who are trying to use the day. So, yeah, she's pretty passionate about, yeah, her day. What do you think, you know, now, you know, over a century since, like, it, it started, what is her legacy? Is it the person that started this holiday? Is it the person that, like, this commercialization got out of control? Where is, where is her her mark on the world now? Well, the fact that we still celebrate the holiday and um, there aren't that many holidays that celebrate just women. I mean, I think I, if you Google it, I think there's seven. There's seven um, honest holidays. I mean, there's like 14 if you count like national don't wear a brawl day or silly, stupid things like that. But there's only like seven holidays that celebrate women. Mother's Day is, is the most popular holiday that celebrates women. She, so she would be happy that the holiday is still the most popular, you know, holiday that celebrates women. She would be upset that nobody knows who she is because um, her ego is so wrapped up into it because she dedicates um, her, her, you know, rest of her 40 years, 40 years of her life is dedicated to this movement. And even in a, long after the holiday was established in 1914, she's defending it, right, for the rest of her life. That was Catherine Antolini, who wrote a book called Memorializing Motherhood, Anna Jarvis and the Struggle for Control of Mother's Day. She was speaking with Duncan Slade. Next week, we'll travel to the expanse of farms and woods near the Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania border that produces close to a third of America's natural gas. But as a freelance Rolling Stone reporter found out, a naturally occurring substance called brine also comes up as a byproduct. And it's radioactive. We'll talk with reporter Justin Noble more about that radioactive drilling waste and the risks it poses, not just to natural gas workers, but to the public. That's next week. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Dinosaur Burps, Nathan L., and Wes Swing. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthur Holtz is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories, or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.